Hi, this is Chris Hart, host of Plugged In with Chris Hart, and I'm taking Michigan over Michigan State in their game October 21st. Bet Online has free odds and lines available online or on your mobile device. Visit Bet Online today. Welcome to the podcast Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. So we're starting this week's story off by telling you about a woman named Jackie Sue Rawson Waller. She was born in Bon Terre, Missouri in 1971 and was raised by loving parents alongside her sisters in St. Genevieve, Missouri. And her life thrived until she crossed paths with a man named James Clay Waller, also known as Clay to his friends and family. Unfortunately, Clay and Jackie's family did not get along, and this mutual dislike caused tension for Jackie, who felt in the middle. Clay made deliberate attempts to create distance between Jackie and her family, behaving disagreeably and making encounters unpleasant. Despite his efforts, Jackie remained steadfast in her connection to her family, even after they got married. It wasn't until 2005, when she became pregnant with triplets, that Jackie grew closer to her sister, Cheryl Brennecke. After giving birth to Avery, Maddox, and Addison, Cheryl became like a second mother to the triplets and Jackie's closest confidant. The two either saw each other or spoke every single day. Despite over a decade of marriage, Jackie finally found clarity and realized that fear, not love, had kept her tied to her husband. Now, initially, Clay worked as a county sheriff, but his supervisor labeled him untrustworthy, leading to his department after only a year. Throughout the years, Clay started and abandoned numerous businesses and jobs, all of which ended in termination. It always fell to Jackie to support their family. After the triplets were born, Jackie took on the responsibility of caring for them day and night, alongside managing a prominent insurance company that provided a good income. However, her demanding job left her with little to no personal time. Clay refused to help with their care and never even changed a diaper. In this situation, Cheryl stepped up to help, offering her support as Clay declined the role. Consequently, Cheryl became the primary caretaker for the triplets while Jackie worked tirelessly to support the family. Now, eventually, Jackie had to make some hard decisions. This started with simple diary entries where she asked herself questions. And the first question that she asked was, quote, do you love Clay? She wrote, I am not in love with him. I do not miss him when he's gone, and I do not enjoy the time we spend together. 
I care about him deeply and want only good things for him. I want him to be a good person and a good father. I feel like I'm responsible for him and I have the need to take care of him. Cheryl would later say that Clay was like Jackie's fourth child. He never helped around the house, financially, or with the children. He had a speech impediment that made him self-conscious, and her sister stayed with him out of pity and kindness. And Jackie may have stayed with him forever if it weren't for his constant affairs. On top of never helping with the children or being able to keep a job, he also couldn't be faithful to Jackie. In another diary entry, Jackie asked herself, quote, What do you have in common? The kids and snow skiing. What reason would you have for staying in this marriage? I'm afraid he will injure or kill me, or injure and kill the kids. If he doesn't do that, I'm afraid of how he will emotionally injure the kids. I feel bad for him. I feel like I am abandoning him. I anticipate the adversarial relationship he will have with me, and I am not sure how I will deal with that. What do you love about Clay? He can be funny and take on new challenges. Do you respect Clay? I do not respect the numerous bad decisions he has made and I allowed him to make. I feel like he has taken me for granted and I am nowhere I would like to be almost 40 years old and I do blame him for that. He is a selfish person and usually puts himself before anyone else including the kids and myself. Now, after Jackie looked at her list and shared it with her family, she concluded that the only reason she was staying with Clay was out of fear of him hurting her or her children. Now, in July of 2010, Clay told Jackie that he was unhappy and was thinking about getting a divorce. Jackie was thrilled. She said, oh, you're unhappy. That works out well because I've been thinking the same thing. As soon as Jackie agreed to the divorce, Clay's mood shifted quickly. He said he had been kidding, but if she wanted to end their marriage, there was only one way to leave, and that was to die. He dragged Jackie into the house by her hair in front of the kids, and he threw her up against the wall so hard that pictures were knocked to the ground. The children witnessed all of this violence against their mother and tried to calm their father and comfort him. Next, Clay went to his truck to grab a gun. Jackie instinctively locked the door. This just further enraged Clay, who kicked in the door and told Jackie that divorcing him would be a death sentence for her. Jackie was terrified by this event and began documenting Clay's death threats and concerning behavior on her work computer. She told her sister Cheryl that if anything were to happen to her or the kids, to make sure that the police got her computer diary. From July 2010 to March 2011, Cheryl continued to encourage her sister to leave Clay. She told Jackie that Clay was all talk and was using his empty threats to control her. Jackie disagreed and continued to take his threats very seriously. In March of 2011, the couple was facing eviction proceedings because, once again, Clay had been financially irresponsible with the couple's finances. Jackie was thrilled with this turn of events because it meant that they had to move. She thought that this was a great excuse for each of them to go their separate ways. Jackie and the triplets moved in with Cheryl and her family. Clay moved in with his family about an hour away. And while Jackie was at work, Cheryl continued to happily care for the triplets. While Jackie was living with her sister, Clay continued to threaten her life and Jackie continued to document all of his threats on her work computer. 
On another occasion, Clay told Jackie, quote, You think you're safe up there with your sisters. Well, you're not. I'll just wait for you to have to go into town and get you going into the grocery store. He continued to tell her if he couldn't have her, then no one else could either. He said he didn't mind playing the long game because he knew eventually he was going to kill her. He constantly reminded her that divorcing him was a death sentence. He continually warned her that no one else would raise his kids except for him. Which was odd because generally he had no interest in his children. He only showed mild interest in his son Maddox. Cheryl would beg Jackie to go to the police and report his threats and take out a restraining order. She wanted Jackie to push for supervised visitation based on his threats against the children. But Jackie insisted that would only make things worse. She said all that she could do was document his threats at work. On another occasion, Clay told Jackie if she allowed him to take their son to live with him in California, he would allow her to live and raise their daughters. Of course, Jackie declined his offer. Then he offered her an alternative. He handed her a loaded gun and told her to kill herself. That way, the children would have at least one parent who could raise them. Again, Jackie declined. While separated, despite having a girlfriend, Clay still expected to reconcile with Jackie and the kids. And he warned her often that he would kill her and the children if she didn't make the right choice. Eventually, Jackie got up the courage to file for divorce from Clay. She told her sister that she would have to be on her best behavior and tread carefully to keep Clay happy. To appease Clay, she allowed him to see the children as often as he wanted. Although he usually only had an interest in seeing their son, he had no interest in his daughters. By June of 2010, Jackie was finally feeling hopeful. Clay had agreed to a 50-50 custody and he had a steady girlfriend. Jackie had been seeing someone too. And their divorce seemed amicable, and they were even sharing the same attorney. On May 29, 2011, Jackie told Clay that she had been dating someone and the two were making plans to eventually move in together. She told Cheryl, quote, I just can't do it anymore. If he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. I can't live like that anymore. That's not living. Now, three days later, on June 1st, 2011, at approximately 3 o'clock p.m., Clay and Jackie met at the law offices of Jeffrey P. Dix in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, to discuss their divorce proceedings. Jackie told Cheryl that morning that she finally was feeling safe. You see, based on Clay's recent statements, she felt like he had not only accepted the divorce, but was hopeful about his future as well. What Jackie didn't realize was that Clay was playing the long game. Jackie felt safe because Clay wanted her to feel safe. He wanted her to feel off guard. At the attorney's office, Clay was able to stall the divorce filing. The attorney said that Clay became agitated when he learned about his financial obligations to the children. He told Jackie that the two should file for bankruptcy first to clear their marital debts before entering into a marital termination agreement. He felt that this would be a cleaner break, and Jackie reluctantly agreed. She was still trying to stay on Clay's good side and didn't want to do anything to upset him. After the meeting, she called Cheryl and told her that she was stopping off at the Waller residence to pick up Maddox, who was with Clay's girlfriend. He had stayed the night with his father. Jackie said she would be back at Cheryl's no later than 5.30 p.m. By 5.31, Cheryl had a bad feeling. 
She began calling and texting Jackie and wasn't getting an answer. Cheryl called Jackie's boyfriend, but he couldn't get a hold of her either. Cheryl called her parents and told them that they had a problem. That's when Cheryl began calling and texting Clay, but he wasn't responding. Finally, she told him if she didn't hear from him within 10 minutes, she would be calling the police. That threat prompted Clay to call her back, and he told her that the last time he had seen Jackie was three hours earlier at the lawyer's office. He told Cheryl that he had talked Jackie into letting Maddox stay a few more days. Cheryl knew that he was lying because Jackie was on the phone with her boyfriend when she arrived at Clay's house at 4.05 p.m. Cheryl immediately accused him of killing her sister, which he denied. From that moment on, Cheryl knew her sister was dead, and she knew that Clay was responsible. She immediately phoned the police and reported her sister as missing. She told them about the diary on Jackie's work computer of Clay's threats to her and their children. She also told them about an odd conversation that she had with Clay. Clay said that he could get away with killing Jackie and he would get a lot of money each month for each of their three children through Social Security death benefits and Jackie's life insurance policy, naming the children as her beneficiary. Clay was under the misguided impression that he would get to retain custody of the children and get to control his children's inheritance. But the Missouri Department of Children's Services put an end to that plan when they placed the triplets in their care while making Cheryl their primary caregiver. This was something that enraged Clay, which we will get into a little later. The next morning, Clay decided to report Jackie missing too. Perhaps he thought that this would make him look innocent. He was wrong. At first, he stuck with the story that Jackie never came over. That didn't work because there were phone records showing that Jackie's boyfriend was on the phone with her up until the moment she arrived in Clay's driveway. The police asked him if he would consent to have his car and his home searched. He told them that they would have to come back with the warrant, which they already had that. When they presented it to Clay, he ripped it in half and asked if he could leave. They searched the home and noticed some children's play mats in the hallway covered with toys. They didn't inspect that area closely. Clay came back in a second time and offered a new story. He admitted that he met Jackie at the attorney's office that day. He said that she was never going to come and pick up their son Maddox. However, she was going to stop by and drop off the key to their post office box. He claimed that the two sat and talked for a while, and they decided to take a nap together. Later, he would insinuate that Jackie had agreed to sleep with him one last time. This is an allegation that no one believes. He told the investigators that after they napped, they began to argue, and Jackie left the residence on foot out of anger. Clay said he left too, and when he returned, Jackie's car was gone. This story was contradicted by Clay's relatives, who said that Jackie's Honda Pilot was still at their home, parked next to a dumpster at 9.30 p.m. Now, the next day, police found Jackie's car, abandoned on Interstate 55 northbound at the 105-mile marker in Jackson, Missouri. Her car was on the shoulder with a flat tire. The inference was that perhaps she had been abducted, except when investigators examined the car, they realized that she didn't drive on a flat tire at all. Instead, someone had slit the tire with a knife before abandoning it. 
Later, a relative of Clay's would say that he found Clay sitting at his front door around 9 o'clock p.m. out of breath. And that's when he said he had just come back from a bike ride. And there was a witness who saw someone riding a bike on the shoulder where the car was abandoned. And then the next day, a relative of Clay's asked the police to come back to the home. They specifically wanted investigators to look at the children's play mats in the hallway. When the police lifted up the mats, they noticed the carpet underneath had been cut out and was missing. This prompted forensics to come back and take a closer look at the residence. And what they found was shocking. They found a high-velocity blood spatter on the hallway walls going up to the ceiling. It appeared something violent took place in this hallway. That's when investigators noticed that there was a disturbance of dust leading to the home's crawl space. Way in the back, they found the missing carpet and padding that was soaked in blood. Later, this blood from the carpet and walls would be a match to Jackie. On July 11, 2011, Special Agent Brian Ritter with the FBI interviewed Clay again and confronted him with the results of the blood analysis. This time, Clay offered a third explanation. Again, Clay denied that the purpose of Jackie's visit was to pick up their son. He said that Jackie came over for personal reasons and to talk about the bankruptcy. He told Agent Ritter that his son was across the state line at his girlfriend's house in Illinois. When the agent asked him if Jackie had ever been injured at his home, he said yes, but he didn't want to talk about it. He insisted that it was not a big deal. Then he began to talk about it. He said that Jackie had an accident in the kitchen that caused her nose to bleed. He said, quote, she started bleeding, like, a lot. He said Jackie cupped her hands over her nose to catch the bleeding. That's when she ran through the house and down the hallway towards the bathroom to clean up the blood. While in the hallway, she tripped and fell several times, and this made her angry. Next, she went into the bathroom and sneezed, which caused blood to spew all over the bathroom. Then Clay claimed that he and Jackie cleaned up the blood together. Then Clay admitted to cutting up the carpet and hiding it in the crawl space. And he said he did this after the police search so that his family wouldn't think that it was something that happened during the search and get upset. Then Clay alleged that Jackie was mad at him because he wouldn't give her back her keys. So he threw them into the yard and they landed in a tree. That is when he saw Jackie walk off. He said after she left, he got a stick and knocked the keys down and left them on her windshield for Jackie to find. When he came back, he said that both Jackie and her car were gone. It's just weird to me that this guy has done, what, like three interviews now with a detective and then the story just keeps changing and getting more creative. Like how he threw Jackie's keys in the tree. It's just kind of weird. Most definitely. Now, after this interview, Agent Ritter went to speak with Clay's father. His father, James Clay Waller Sr., had quite the story to tell. He said that a few days after Jackie went missing, his son admitted to killing her. Clay told him that he had dug a hole for Jackie the day before the murder and buried her with a shovel. He told his father that no one would ever find her. And while telling his father about killing Jackie, he made a motion with his arm indicating that he broke her neck. His father said that Clay was crying and emotional when he confessed. His father told him he should go to the police station and turn himself in and ask for psychiatric treatment. Thank you. 
Now, authorities, they placed a tracker on Clay's car, which he appeared to be aware of. He would drive to vacant lots in the forest and stare at the open areas for hours. And then when police would search that area in the next few days, he would drive by and laugh, honk his horn, and make obscene hand gestures to the police and Jackie's family members. He would taunt them and tell them that no one would ever find her. He reminded them that he played the long game and he played to win. Okay, so even though Ashley went over a few of the diary entries that Jackie wrote, there were even more shocking entries he had written down. We learned that when the police located the diary of threats on Jackie's work computer, they were shocked. The first entry was dated June 2010. It said that Clay was angry with Jackie and told her to never keep his kids from him. Then he ran through the garage threatening to get his gun. Jackie stopped him, and the kids ran into the garage to protect her. Then they tried to comfort their father and ask him to calm down and be nice to their mother. In July 2010, Clay was in a rage again and began packing his bags. As he walked out, he hit Jackie and pushed her into the wall. She thought he was done packing, so she locked the door. He kicked the door in and told her he was going to blow her head off. He got his gun from his truck and tried to drag her back into the house by her hair. Jackie managed to escape from the home and began running towards a neighbor's house. Suddenly, Clay removed the bullets from the gun and threw the gun at her. On July 17, 2010, Clay took all three kids camping. Before they left, he insisted that Jackie take several photos of them. Later, when he returned, he told her that he had planned to kill the kids that weekend. He made her take the pictures so they would haunt her. He said he knew that killing the kids would destroy her. Then he told her to think twice about divorcing him because it meant a death sentence for her and the children. On October 27, 2010, Clay asked Jackie if they were getting back together or not. She told him she still had trust issues from his many affairs. He told her that they could get a divorce and even get along with each other, However, he would never stand for another man raising his children. Jackie promised him that this wouldn't be a problem. He told her if she thought in a couple of years that she would get a man and think everything would be fine, that she was wrong. He promised Jackie that he would kill the kids, then her, and then himself. On November 2, 2010, at 6 a.m., Clay asked for his gun back. He told her that if she didn't give it back to him, he would buy another that day and kill her. He told her he was having nightmares that she was cheating on him. When she asked why he wanted the gun, he began to gaslight her and tell her that he had never threatened to kill her or the kids. He just wanted his gun back in case she was cheating on him. She told him she would give it back, but then she was going to buy another gun for her protection. At that moment, Clay looked at her with an evil smile. One of the reasons why Clay told Jackie that he was going to kill her was because he wasn't going to allow another man to raise their children. The other reason was she knew too much and she could testify against him. Now, as you can understand, like Ricky said, the police were shocked when they read these diary entries and anyone automatically would think that Clay killed Jackie. 
Jackie also included some of the crimes that Clay alleged he committed on her work computer. And they read as follows. Clay stated that he killed a man in Colorado during a forest fire. It would have been 1988 to 1992. He said the man thought he was looting his property while he was only trying to get away from the fire. He thought it was either him or the man. He also said it was close to a river. Another entry stated, quote, Clay stated that he shot a man's son in 2010. Clay states that when he was a child, the man would sexually abuse him. The man's son was 21 at the time and did nothing to stop it. And the last one says, quote, Clay states that he left his guns in the toolbox at Walmart and they were stolen. I assumed that he hired someone to take them. I believe he has some other guns that are not registered to him. He has two handguns registered to him. I have one and my parents had the other. Now, police were unable to confirm that any of these stories about Clay killing people were true. Without Jackie's body, police were reluctant to bring Clay to trial. Investigators found surveillance tape that night that Jackie went missing of Clay in his truck pulling a small boat. He was at a car wash, pressure washing the boat and the truck. Inside the truck was a trash can that police suspected had held Jackie's body. While investigators were building their case against Clay, he did them a favor and committed another crime. Clay was livid that Cheryl had custody of his children. He had gone to court to get custody back. However, because of Jackie's diary entries, where she documented all the times he had threatened to kill the children, he was prevented from even having supervised visitation. That's when Clay went on what he thought was an anonymous forum, and while pretending to be someone else, he threatened to kill Cheryl. The entry read, quote, You are dead. I promise if those kids get hurt, your fault, accident, or nobody's fault, you are dead. Your dad threatened Clay. I know he's all talk. I will get you in 5, 10, 25 years from now. You have it coming, Cheryl. Now, as you can imagine, Cheryl took these threats very seriously, given all his previous threats against her sister. She reported them to the police, and they investigated them. As a result of the online threat, Clay was arrested on July 29, 2011, and held without bail. Clay pleaded guilty to Cheryl's allegations. Based on the recommendation from the parole department, it was suggested that Clay be sentenced to between 6 and 12 months in county jail. This recommendation is likely why Clay agreed to plead guilty. He likely would have been released based on time served. However, the judge rejected the sentencing recommendation based on the likelihood that Clay had killed his wife and had made ongoing threats against her and his children in the past. To Clay's shock, the judge sentenced him to five years in prison. Clay immediately appealed his sentence based on the fact that he believed the presiding judge violated the sentencing guidelines, but that was about to be the least of Clay's problems. In April of 2012, while serving his sentence for the threat against Cheryl, Clay was arrested once again and charged with Jackie's murder. Count one was for first-degree murder of Jackie Waller. And count two and three were for tampering of evidence while committing a felony. Seeing the writing on the wall, Clay played the long game once again and offered to give up the location of Jackie's body in exchange for a reduced charge of second-degree murder. Jackie's parents and children reluctantly agreed to this plea. 
They wanted to bury their mother and daughter and gain a measure of closure. Right after authorities found the surveillance footage of Clay washing his boat, they got a tip that someone matching Clay's description had been seen near Devil's Island across state lines. Right after Jackie's disappearance, police searched the island, but they never found Jackie's body. In exchange for a 20-year sentence, Clay led them to Jackie's body. At first, he couldn't remember where he had buried her. Clay had told officers that he had poured a bag of fertilizer on top of Jackie's body. Investigators realized that sometimes pouring excessive amounts of fertilizer can cause a tree to die. There was one dead tree in the clearing. That is where they found Jackie's body. According to the investigators on the scene, everyone paused for a long moment of silence and said a prayer. They wanted to treat Jackie with the respect and dignity she deserved after being thrown away like trash in an unmarked grave. The prosecution had made a deal with the devil. It was clear that Jackie's murder was premeditated, yet Clay could be out in as little as 17 and a half years. Now, part of Clay's plea agreement meant that he had to finally tell the truth about what happened to Jackie. Clay admitted to luring Jackie over to his home under the pretense of picking up their son. The day before, he had taken his boat to Devil's Island and dug her grave. When Jackie came inside, Clay admitted to punching her once in the face and her going down. Again, Clay had been lying because her autopsy report showed that she was beaten repeatedly and likely died from blunt force trauma. Clay said that Jackie got up and ran down the hallway to get away from him. That is when he said that he allegedly pressed his arm against her neck and she peacefully died. It was a very self-serving statement. Jackie's son gave a very moving victim impact statement. While it was played in the courtroom, everyone seemed emotional except for Clay, the father. He was remorseless. Maddox told his father, quote, You're a big fat jerk. Do you know that? You shouldn't have killed our mom. You're not my dad anymore, and you're a big fat jerk, and I will never think about you again. I thought you were a good guy. Now I know you're not. I wish you weren't my dad, you big fat jerk. Clay was ordered to serve the five-year sentence and the 20-year sentence concurrently. He had to serve at least 85% of his time before he could be considered for parole. The sentence certainly didn't match the crime. However, that wasn't the end of the road for Clay. Clay was under the impression that he was going to be able to sell his life story and profit from it in the amount of $400,000. He thought this money would be waiting for him after he was released from prison. He hired another inmate to write his story, and that inmate produced a manuscript. When Clay Waller didn't follow through with the payment, that manuscript made it into the hands of federal authorities. Thanks to the manuscript, they were able to charge Clay with the federal crime of interstate travel to commit domestic violence, which carried a maximum penalty of life imprisonment. Once again, Clay chose to plead guilty for a lesser sentence. His lesser sentence won't begin until after he served his 20 year for the murder of Jacqueline Waller. This time, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison, which means that Clay will be eligible for parole when he's 97 years old. Once again, Clay appealed his sentence based on it being excessive. And once again, his appeal was denied. 
Now, on November 12, 2013, Bob and Cheryl Brennicke officially adopted Jackie's three children. The Brennickys were always committed to raising Jackie's children and were so happy to make it finally official. Now, sadly, we cover so many of these cases where one person makes the horrifying decision to take the life of their spouse. And while it's not always the man in the relationship, it is often that we begin to notice patterns in these monsters. They all seem to have a controlling nature and the arrogance to believe that they are entitled to someone else's life for the crime of wanting a different life. The decision to commit violence against their wives or partners after being confronted with the prospect of divorce is a complex and disturbing issue that cannot be explained by a single factor. Some cannot be explained at all. But it is important to identify these patterns and share these traits to hopefully prevent future cases and just be aware that this is a common issue. Most of these crossover psychological factors and patterns may contribute to these extreme and violent responses. According to domestic violence experts, a few of these crossover traits include narcissism and a sense of control. In some cases, men who exhibit narcissistic traits may struggle to find the idea of losing control of their partner and their relationship. They believe their partners have no free will or autonomy. They don't believe they have the right to choose to leave the relationship. For these types of individuals, the prospect of divorce threatens their sense of power and dominance over their partner, leading to an intense fear of abandonment, humiliation, and loss of self-esteem. And there could be many other factors that could play into why someone acts this way, such as a number of personality disorders. Individuals with certain personality disorders, such as antisocial personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, may have difficulties managing their emotions, impulsivity, and the general lack of empathy. These traits can increase the risk of violent behaviors, especially when faced with the potential loss of an intimate relationship. In relationships with a history of violence or prior incidents of intimate partner violence, a request for a divorce can trigger an intense emotional reaction. Like in this case, it can escalate violent behavior as a way to assert dominance and prevent separation. In other cases similar to the Waller case, one spouse may have been emotionally or financially dependent on the other. The fear of losing that emotional or financial stability can lead to feelings of desperation, which may manifest in violent actions. We've said this again and again on this podcast, but it is so crucial to address and prevent such violence through early intervention, mental health support awareness campaigns, and legal measures to protect victims of domestic violence. So if you or if you know someone who is facing domestic violence, seek help from law enforcement, support groups, or counselors. They can be crucial to ensuring safety and breaking the cycle of abuse. So if you're in a situation where you don't know what to do or where to go, you can always reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline 24-7 at 800-799-7233 or by text at 88788. They can assist you to obtain guidance on how to safely make a plan to escape your situation. And if you're someone who wants to help, spread the word about this hotline and even check out your local women's shelter and see what kind of donations they are looking for. 
And this concludes this week's episode. We just want to shout out to all of our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting our show. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Crime Salad, and we will be back next week.